For right now, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter number 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll read the Bible before we have a moment of prayer. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1 of Romans 8 tonight. We're going to read down through verse number 16. And then uh, just listen up. We'll catch a couple of verses at the end of the chapter as well uh, in our Bible reading tonight. Uh, I'll ask you just to follow along. Let me begin reading verse number 1 where the Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the Spirit do mind the things of the flesh, they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded uh, is, is life. Uh, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. That is to say, we have obligation. Not to the flesh, no further obligation to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Note verse 16, the Spirit himself also bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, let's move over to the end of the chapter. I don't know if you have to turn a page or not, but let's read from verse number 37, and we'll catch the remaining two verses after that. As it is written, for thy sake are we, I'm sorry, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor life, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what an amen we can say to that. What an incredible chapter we have that begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the Scripture tonight. So, Father, we thank you uh, for this reading of your Word, and we have done that in obedience to your Word, where you tell us to give attention to reading. And we know, Father, that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we thank you, Father, that you have given it to us. We thank you you've preserved it and allowed us to have a copy of it right in our very hands. In fact, that in our land, 
at least. The Word of God is so plentiful that we can have as many copies and put them in as many places as we want to. And even in this tech of technology, we can even have them on our mobile devices to take with us wherever we go. Thank you for all of those wonderful gifts, especially when we realize that there are people around the world who don't have that. Perhaps there are places where the Bible doesn't even exist in native tongue or other places where the Bible is a, a forbidden book. And so thank you for what you've given to us. Thank you for America. Thank you for the day that we have tomorrow. And uh, Father, thank you for the work ethic that built this nation. And we pray that we will not continue to keep on drifting away from that, living as we seem to be in these days of entitlement, where so many people don't see the value of work or the need to work, and the government seems to just pick up people regardless of their status and prop them up and help us, Lord, to seek out the truly needy that need our help. And uh, let those that work, Lord, put in their hearts and put in the minds of politicians that they should work. And then, Father, we think of what's captivated our attention these past few days is this storm that they didn't seem to have a whole lot of uh, thought for, as it was originally just a tropical depression, has grown into the biggest of the categories of hurricanes, a, a Category 5 hurricane with winds over 180 miles an hour sustained and gusts of over 220 miles an hour, and our hearts go out to the people in these uh, barrier-type islands where this hurricane is now making landfall in the, in the, in the nation of Bar uh, Bahamas. We pray that you'll just strengthen and help these people, give uh, the people that are in government uh, and have responsibilities special wisdom, protect them as they perhaps find themselves in some risky situations trying to help other people and uh, give uh, the people who know about this storm, whether they are in some of the other places where it may track uh, the wisdom to do what they can about it while they can before it's too late. We realize, Lord, that even in that there's a message because we realize that so often we don't want to take those things uh, seriously until it's too late, it's upon us, and then we're in trouble. And so uh, we pray that you'll just even give uh, to, to officials here in America a heart and a mind to help people instead of just making political merchandise out of it. And we just pray now that you'll bless us this evening as we look into God's Word. And I pray that you will use uh, the thoughts that you've given to me, Lord, to just guide my speech. Give me a fresh cleansing from uh, sin and a, a sense of the presence and liberty and freedom of the Holy Spirit about whom so much is written in this chapter tonight to give your word with all unction, clarity, and practicality. For I pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, I would like to bring you a message tonight that I am calling More Than Conquerors Part 1. And God willing, we are going to look at More Than Conquerors Part 2 next Sunday night. Tell a little secret about where these messages come from. Several weeks ago, I don't know, three, four, five, maybe it was somewhere in that range, maybe four or five, had a telephone call from a uh, a man who's a close friend of mine, I've served for years with Al Harris on the board of Keystone Christian Education Association, and uh, now that I'm no longer the president of the board or officially serving on the board, um, Al is actually now the elected president of Keystone Christian Education Association and serves the Lord as the pastor of Hope Baptist Church over in Hanover and Hope Christian School. And several weeks ago, he called me on the phone and he said, hey, he said, I've got a I've got an assignment for you. I said, yeah, what is it? 
He said, well, we're having a special emphasis day at the school, and I think they started maybe last Monday even, so they, they had school for the week. But he said, having a special day on the Friday of the week, which would now be two days in the past, the 30th, and he said, we have a camp down the road uh, from the school, maybe no more than half a mile, and uh, we, we like to do this. We get a few days of school under our belt, and then we get down to the camp and uh, let the kids have kind of a special activity day. But he said, we have two messages. So, so he said, we're going to start off at the school with one message in the morning early, and then we'll go down and spend the day there until the school day is ready. And then uh, we have a Bible time, and then we'll have the uh, among the activities, and then finally the last message at the end of the day. He said, this year, we've chosen to use a phrase from Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. Look down in your Bible at that. More than conquerors. He said, we've chosen to use that phrase as our theme verse this year. He said, I want you to come over and take those two messages, and you're free to develop that however you want. He said, I will have already spoken to them uh, earlier in the week in chapel, but he said, I won't go anywhere near that. He said, you take that and run with the ball, and uh, we'll just look forward to what the messages are that the Lord uh, gives you to bring to us. Well, you know, I put (laughs) so much time and effort into that, and it was kind of interesting that all in the process of while we were doing that, I was bringing you the messages on John chapter 15 and thinking about the fact that, you know, God, we are to abide and how important that idea of abiding is. And this idea of putting a lot of stress on this idea of abiding and continuing on in Christ and maintaining our personal relationship with him and then understanding that as we do that, that life-giving power flows into us through the indwelling Christ the imagery of the vine and the branches. And of course, if you think about this for a moment, this really dovetails, and the Lord uh, put it on my heart and mind just to go ahead and bring these messages here as well because I think they make a great kind of a complement to what we were talking about there. And if you think about it, it really ties together even maybe more than what you realize because you come up on that, uh, that discourse that we looked at in John chapter 15 on the vine and the branches that's John chapter 15. But earlier than that, you have the great John chapter 14, which is also a part of the upper room discourse where Jesus tells them, I'm going away, but I'm going to send you another comforter who will abide with you forever. And so we know the one who indwells us. He's called in this chapter over and over again, the spirit of Christ, the one who makes the presence of Christ real to us in our lives is the blessed Holy Spirit of God. So there's like a far greater connection maybe in this than what at first we might realize because it's really through the Holy Spirit that we have the key to victory. However, if you'll notice verse 37, and I'm sure you've noticed this in your Bible reading before, he says something kind of unusual. He doesn't say we're conquerors through Christ. We kind of expect that back as far as chapter 7 when he's talking about this great struggle that goes on. This great conflict, which also relates to what we've been talking about, this maintenance of our Christian walk and our Christian life with Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful it all just dropped out of the sky? But it doesn't work that way. We know we have the old man. We know we have the new nature. We know there's a constant struggle that goes on because every day we get up, we have to fight to do the right thing. And sometimes I even find myself many things that I've already determined that I'm going to do Uh, and that I've already made that that decision, I have to sort of remake it again at the beginning of some days because that old struggle is is sometimes always is there. Paul's going through this. 
And he says, O wretched man that I am, in chapter 7, verse 24, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's gotten to the place where he's talked about this struggle that goes on in the life of every one of us as a Christian, talks about the fact that we have victory through Christ. He's the one who delivers us. And then we have a whole big chapter that goes on to develop this. Did you ever ask yourself then, well, what is it to be more than a conqueror? Shouldn't we just be satisfied with being conquerors? Why is it that he says we're more than conquerors? And this is really interesting because the word that he uses here, it occurs only here in the New Testament. And if I told you what this word is in its, in its constituent parts, you would say, wow, I didn't realize I knew as much about that and, and how to figure out what it means. Because, first of all, most people are aware of Nike, which are the, is the sport brand, right? Well, that's our English way of kind of saying it. Nike in Greek is victory, and nikao is the verb, and it means to overcome and to conquer. And think about this. Many, many times in the Bible, we find overcome. We realize that we are overcomers through Christ, and, and this is in John's writings. This is the same word, to conquer, to overcome. But then what Paul does is, is he tacks, as you so often do in Greek, uh, as, and we heard, I think, uh, Lee was saying in the Sunday school this morning, you have a, a prefix, which ends up as just basically as a preposition. But once again, you would know this too, because it's the one that we have, that we bring over into English, and it comes out as hyper. You ever know somebody that was hyper? <laughs> it's like sometimes I look at these little kids and I think to myself, can I just get close enough to touch them and see if some of that would flow this way? They just seem to have so much of that, and sometimes if they get too many Mountain Dews, then it's over the top. And uh, we all kind of know what that is. But So to be a hyper-conqueror is to be a, it's, it's to be a conqueror over the top. It's to be more than a conqueror. It's to be a super-conqueror, more than an over-conqueror. Now, think about this in the context and ask yourself why Paul would make that statement. Let's back up and see some things, and this will sort of help set the stage for where we're headed next week as well as we conclude this. But what's, what I find that's so interesting in the lead-up to this, we didn't read these verses because they'll be the subject of our, our message, God willing, next Sunday night. But in the lead-up to this, in the second half of the chapter, Paul's talking about so many things that we confront on a daily basis as a part of the Christian life. Look at verse 17. This is something no one stands in line for, but he mentions it. He says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him... Wow, suffering. You mean we meet up with suffering at times, and we certainly do. Then he mentions something else. If we drop down to verse number 18, he mentions weakness. So there we read, I'm sorry, um, verse number uh, 26, he mentions weakness. So look there, and it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Don't you wish you didn't have infirmities? That's the word that's just, it's the standard word in Greek for sickness or weakness. Don't you wish you didn't have any weaknesses? Don't you wish you didn't have any infirmities? Boy, it would sure be easy to serve the Lord if we didn't have all these infirmities. <laughs> Did you ever think that way? Yeah, I think that way about every minute of every day. But at any rate, we have those to contend with. And then we have what I'm going to call in verse number uh, 28. You won't find this word here, but it's implied. 
what, what we'll call setbacks, because we love this verse, and rightly so, but he says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So what's the whole inference is that there are a lot of things in life don't seem good. There are a lot of things in life that we wouldn't have planned it that way. We wouldn't have thought that that helps anything. In fact, we would have think that's a real setback. And yet God overrules that, and he does it for our good and for his glory. And so we have to deal with that. And then we have to deal with um, something else that he mentions here, and that is in verse number 35, he mentions persecution. Now, he's got a whole list of things, but if you're looking just to pick the one out, he says, "...who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword?" And it's really clear that all of these things come up in the context of persecution, which is why I single that term out, because in the next verse, he quotes this Old Testament verse, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But did you ever get the impression, especially when you hear those four concepts, did you ever get the impression that the Christian life isn't always easy? It's really true. And so... Here's the thing. Then he comes right out after this and says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In all these things. Did you notice he doesn't say after all these things, which is the way a lot of people think. Boy, you know, when I get, get to heaven. But God doesn't want us to overcome those things only when we get to heaven. He provides for us to overcome them now. He doesn't say, nay, apart from all these things, as if, okay, it's, you don't get them. You know, it's the, the, the health and wealth concept that Joel Osteen and others seem to purvey all the time. You know, you just need to get with Jesus and everything will be yeah, right. Doesn't quite work out that way, does it? And so these people are really not honest. And Paul is quite honest. He says, you're going to encounter all these things that are very, very difficult, but yet we're more than conquerors because here we are, overcomers in spite of, despite of all those things, we are overcomers, not after them, not without them, not apart from them, but in them, despite them, which is why Paul says we are more than overcomers. And I want to talk about this. I want to develop this, why this is true. And we need to look at two things. So tonight we're going to be looking at what I'll call the foundations of victory in the first half of the chapter, because here's the thing, folks. If you don't have these foundations in your life, then there's no sense in even talking about this idea of being an overcomer because you won't even be on the victory side. And he does this in the first part of the chapter. The three things we're going to spend a few minutes talking about tonight. The first one we find in chapter 8, verse 1, is the new birth. And you say, well, preacher, you know what? I'm looking at this verse, and I don't see the new birth in that verse. You just need to look a little harder. Because I promise you, it's there. It's there as bold as you could want it to be. You just have to recognize the language that Paul is using to describe it. Notice he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are, and what are the next three words? In Christ Jesus. But you see, folks, here's the thing. That isn't how we come into this world. We come into this world under condemnation because we are in Adam. 
And the Bible says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. This is Paul's language. This is Paul's theological phrase that he uses to talk about what, in other lay terms, we simply talk about as the new birth. It's Paul's way of building on the concept. So let me ask you a question. Do you ever hear this in a sermon or in a Sunday school lesson? Do you ever hear someone talk about progressive revelation? Anybody? A couple of you are tentatively shaking your heads like, oh, what's he? is this going to be a trick question? Oh, no, no, no. This is something that's uh, one of the great truths about the Bible. That's why sometimes you've also heard people talk about the law of first mention. And the reason for that is, is because the Bible is a book containing 66 books, which are written over a period of time, yet there is a coherent theme and a unity to it all. And also the Bible is put together in such a way that revelation always builds on itself. So earlier in the Bible, we get the beginning of concepts given to us. And then through the Old Testament, maybe more concepts are introduced. Maybe with some of the other concepts that have been introduced earlier, we get more and more until finally we come to the New Testament and we get the fullest revelation. The fullness of revelation comes in the New Testament. And so this is what's going on. Now, if you think about it, maybe not in the time frame in which the books were written, but certainly in the time frame in which the revelation was given, Jesus in his ministry on the earth, but it's actually in the Old Testament as well. But where we really know it, Jesus in his ministry on the earth talked about the new birth, didn't he? And that's really where the disciples, I mean, you can go back and talk about the new covenant. You can talk about places where this is really what it's talking about. Yes, a new heart will I give them, a new spirit, and all this. Ezekiel talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. So all the, all the groundwork is laid there. But boy, it's not until you get to Jesus, and he starts talking about this in plain, simple, ordinary terms that you would hope a person could understand, except the main character that he was talking to about it on the most famous occasion didn't understand it, and that was Nicodemus. Well, let's go back to John, and again, we could spend a lot of time with this. I think most of us are, are somewhat well-versed in this, but lest we take anything for granted, let's see if we can't go and tie this together, and then uh, you'll be able to see where we're coming to here. So if we go back to the book of John, chapter 1, we'll go back to kind of the earliest place, really, where it comes up. And in John, chapter 1... It says here, and Jesus says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, there's the new birth, and it even tells us how the new birth comes about. It comes about when God works in our hearts, reveals to us our sinful estate, the fact that we need a Savior, and that we are in verse number 11, that we have never received Christ as Savior, and we need a Savior. 
And the Holy Spirit works in our heart in such a way that we, we move out of verse 11 and we move into verse 12. And how do you do that? You do that by receiving Christ. You say, you know, I've seen that phrase in the Bible before and I've never understood it. Oh, yes, you do. You understand it more than you think because if you look at the end of the verse, he explains what that means. He tells us exactly what it is to receive Christ when he says, even to them that believe on his name. So when that point in time comes that we understand that we're sinners who are lost and undone and need to be saved, and the Spirit of God is convicting us of that, while at the same time He's revealing to us Jesus as our Savior who died on the cross for our sins, and He's wooing us to the Savior, and then He wins our hearts over, we put our faith and trust in Christ as our personal Savior, and we're born again. That's what it says here. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit. So let's see where Jesus really brings this out. He, he says here, it's not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But when we come over to chapter 3, then he really spells it out. He says to Nicodemus, hey, Nicodemus, you know what the real problem is? The thing that's really on your mind is the Holy Spirit's been working in your heart. He's been drawing you. He's been convicting you. There's no assurance of eternal life there because everything you've got is based on the law and everything you've got is based on a works righteousness. And I'm telling you right now, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What a thing to say to a man who was a ruler in Israel. What a thing to say to a man who was a Pharisee and sat on the council. You can't even see. You can't perceive. You can't really understand spiritual truth apart from the new birth. We're told, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. It has to be the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to these truths. And he says, and down in verse 5, Jesus says, Verily, verily, when Nicodemus is confused, he goes on to say, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Oh, so the new birth happens when we trust in Christ and believe on him. But the, the new birth is supernatural. It's not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Only the Holy Spirit can produce this work. Only the Spirit of God has the power to blast you out of where you and I were born in Adam and put us in Christ and give us a completely new heart. So it's no wonder then that when we get to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul's using a more developed phrase for this. He's talking about the fact, well, you know, the body of Christ, which was a, somewhat of a mystery in the Old Testament, and we're given a lot of revelation on the body of Christ in the New Testament, both Jew and Gentile, all one, and the church is his body, the body of Christ. And how do we become a part of the church? Well, when we believe on Christ, the Holy Spirit regenerates us. We're born again, and we're joined organically to the body of Christ. But that's not something that baptism does, and it's not something that being interviewed before a church committee and then going up before the front of the church and answering a few questions and, be, and being voted into the membership accomplishes, there's nobody going to vote you into the kingdom of God. Amen. Only the Holy Spirit can do this work and put us in Christ and organically join us to Christ and to every other person who truly is born again and knows Christ as personal Savior. This is why Romans 8 is so unique because you know what? If you go back and you read... Romans 1 through 7, you're only going to find one exceptionally clear reference to the Holy Spirit, and that's in chapter 1. There are two other places that it's possible he's referring to the Holy Spirit. But if you go back to Romans chapter uh, 1 and verse 4, 
Um, you find a clear reference to the Holy Spirit there. It's just that the way it's worded is uh, not always, we don't always realize that this is what's going on, but it is. It says here, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. Well, that's kind of a, an Old Testament Hebrew way of saying the Spirit of holiness is the same as the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Holy Spirit by the resurrection from the dead. Other than that, Paul doesn't really talk about the Holy Spirit. Yet you get to chapter 1, or verse 1 of chapter 8 of Romans, and then you have, boom, it's like, it, it, it starts to flow out almost like a dam that's broken. He starts talking about the Holy Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation, but we're born under the condemnation of sin. But because the Spirit of, as he says here in this verse, the Spirit of life, verse number 2, in Christ Jesus has made us free. Who is it that did this work? Who was it that liberated us from the bondage of sin, opened our eyes to our darkened estate, drew us to Jesus Christ, and brought us to the place of belief and putting our faith and trust in him? The blessed Holy Spirit, the one who's always in the background, the one whose mission in, in this world is simply to exalt Christ, he's the one doing that work. The, and the new birth is a product of the working of the Holy Spirit. So this is exactly what Paul is talking about. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Then he goes so far as to say later in these verses, and we don't have time to talk about everything that's here, verse number 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling your heart, if you've never been regenerated and born again, and now the Spirit of God indwells your heart, you're not a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. That's what he's saying here. And everyone who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling in his heart. So to unlock the secrets of Romans chapter 8, we have to understand that it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God who's the key to us, and the Spirit of God is the key to the new birth. Can we produce this liberation? Can we produce this freedom from condemnation by our own self-effort? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Look what he says in verse number 3. For what the law could not do. Just stop right there. The law can't do it. The law can make you appear different. The law, the law can't make you inside different. Right? Because you can join a church, you can do good works, you can help the little ladies across the street, and you can look like, the image that everyone has for a Christian, but if the Spirit of God has never changed your heart. You know, Spurgeon had a way of illustrating that. He told the story of a missionary who visited kind of a, a primitive, primitive hut on one occasion. And you know how this is if you ever had this experience. The missionary walked into the hut. He was somewhat aghast and revolted by the, the floor because the floor was just obnoxious and filthy. And after a bit, he finally found the best way he could to mention to the person that's there. He said, why, why don't we see if we can't clean this up? He said, we could get some soap and water and scrub this thing. And the man said, oh, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Because he said, you see, the, the floor of this hut is basically nothing more than hard-packed dirt. And if you get out soap and water and try to clean this up, you're going to have a bigger mess than what you had before. 
Spurgeon took that and said, so it is with the human heart. It is hard, it is dirty, and nothing will help it. And man needs a new heart. And the more we try to clean that mess up ourselves, the bigger mess we make. Only God can give us a new heart. The law could not do this, and the works of the law can't do this, but the power of God through the new birth can do this. And it's what Paul is talking about here. How does it happen? It happens by being in Christ. And guess what? This new birth, let's go back and see something else that we didn't look at a moment ago to tie it right in. Back in John chapter 5, here's the last verse where Jesus is really giving us this information. And he says here in John 5.24, which is oftentimes a memory verse for people, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Doesn't say we'll have eternal life. Doesn't say we'll get eternal life. Says you have it right now. I like that. I like knowing in my heart I will never be any more saved than I am right now. I might look a little more. Might act a little more. One day when we're with Jesus, we won't have the old man to tug us down anymore. But insofar as my standing with God is concerned, I'm as saved now as I will be 10 billion years from now. When did all that happen? Well, when I heard his word and the Spirit of God led me to believe on him that sent me, I was given eternal life. And he says this, I won't come into condemnation. Why? Because the Spirit of God has made me free from the law of sin and death. They that are in Christ Jesus, this is what he says in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. It is a thing of the past. We've been set free. Which is why when you get down here a little bit later in the chapter, he says in verse 12, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, there's no further obligation to the flesh. We have the Spirit of God now, and we have the power within us to live as God wants us to live. And, you know, really, that brings us to the second foundation of victory. The first is the new birth. If you don't have that, you haven't gotten out of the starting gate. That, that's the absolute bare minimum. But there's more because... There is a new power that he describes in chapter 8, verse 13. It also comes only through the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, before we look at this verse, let me just say this. We all understand this a lot better than maybe what you think because we all know it's possible to be born again but not living on the victory side. And why is that? It's because we still have this old rotten flesh that's still with us. And we still have a, a, a will and... You know, if, if, if we're yielding and being led by the Holy Spirit, we have this victory. If his power is working in us, we have the freedom to do whatever God wants us to do. You know, that's not true before you're saved. Did you know that? You may think you have the, the freedom to do. You may think you have the power to do whatever you ought to do. But Paul said in chapter 7, I find then a law, verse 21, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Anybody that's honest will tell you that. He says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law that is principle, warring in my members against the law 
of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. No matter how hard we try, we just don't seem to ever in and of our own selves be, have the, the power and impetus to break away. But you know, by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. So how is it that we understand this thing? We understand this problem. You can be born again, but not living on the victory side. How do we assure that we have the victory in an ongoing way, that we're abiding in Christ, that we're dwelling and continuing on and having victory in our lives and drawing that power that we need off of Christ? Well, he says it right here. This little phrase at the end of verse number 13 is about the most, one of the most important phrases you're going to read here at all. This, this whole central thought drills down to this when he says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if through the Spirit ye do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So how is it that we have this victory? How is it that we're able to say no? How is it that we're able to put to death the old man? And what he would, the traps he would lead us into. Only by the power of God's Holy Spirit are we able to do that. In and of ourselves, we will, we will never have the victory. That struggle goes on within us all. But the power of the Holy Spirit or our dependence upon it is the second foundation of victory. I really like this illustration. I came across it not too long ago, but... A man was talking about, as a preacher, in fact, was talking about, I suppose this dated him a little bit, but he was talking about the fact that after World War II, he saw a picture in a magazine. In fact, it was a couple of pictures, but he said, the first picture showed an infantryman. Okay, so army, and he's a, he's a regular infantryman, and he has, he has his rifle with him. So he has his M1 or whatever, you know, that they uh, would have carried, and he's standing there and looming before him, huge monster of a contraption that's bearing down on him in the picture and looming so largely in front of him is a battle tank. Is he any match for the tank? Is he any match, an infantryman against a tank with a, an M1? Not much. Not much. It'll crush him. But the next picture, he said, moved on. Now it's different. The same infantryman is standing there, but now instead of the rifle, he's got a bazooka. And, of course, we don't so much use that term anymore. It's more like an RPG or something like that. You know, it's a little more up-to-date even than the bazooka. And now it shows him the tank being the same size, maybe even slightly smaller than the soldier. The soldier has the bazooka. Now he's more than a match for the tank. And why is that true? It's true because he has a new weapon that he never had before. And beloved, that's the way it is with you and me. See, once we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we have a new power and a new weapon, and that cuts it all right down to size. The battle tank is still there. There's still a battle going on. But it's a battle you can win through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly... We have a new assurance. Look at verse number 16. And this is where Paul talks about this. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, most of the time when I read this, in fact, 99 times out of 100, I read it this way on purpose, which is exactly how it appears in your text. But most of the time I don't read it the way it appears in the text. 
And I, every once in a while, I like to stop and explain to the audience what I'm doing. I, I don't really have another version of the Bible. I'm just reading it correctly. You see, the Spirit itself is correct grammatically, which is why the translators kind of did that. It's not correct theologically, because the Holy Spirit's not an it. Do you understand if you ever study languages, you have gender, and Greek has gender, number, and case. So what happens, pneuma, which is the word for the Holy Spirit, is neuter. So because it's neuter, the translators just reflected that, the Spirit itself. But I always just change that to read it theologically correctly. It's the Spirit himself, because the Spirit's not an it. The Spirit's not a force, the Spirit's a person. And that, that's hugely important. So the translators got it right insofar as reflecting the grammar, but in this particular case, the theology of the thing needs to trump the grammar, and we need to just write it and read it exactly in the sense in which it's meant to be taken because aren't you glad the Holy Spirit's not some it? He's a blessed person who indwells our, our lives. And he makes God real to us. And so... The Spirit of God is the one himself who comes. Jesus said this. He said this in that upper room discourse and that same thing. He said, the Father, we will come and make our abode with him. How? Through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And when he does that, he brings... One of the things that he does in our lives is he provides assurance This is huge because I'll tell you something. You can be born again. You can realize about the power of the Holy Spirit and that that's the new weapon that we have and we can be victorious over the flesh. But you'll always have a vulnerability, a susceptibility, an instability in your Christian life if you don't have assurance. You just will. It, there'll be days when you... Think you're saved, and other days, uh, not sure. Well, on those days when you're not sure, <laughs> you're, the devil's going to kick you around all over the place. Me too. That's why this is so important. Someone said regarding in salvation and an assurance that there are three groups of people. There are those who are secure, who are secure but not sure. In other words, they have it. They just they don't have proper teaching to understand that they can be sure about that. They really have been born again, but they just don't have the right kind of teaching to know that right in this book, you depend upon what this says in this book and claim its promises. He said, then there are those who are sure but not secure, that there are people like that. You know, they're just bad. They think they're going to heaven and they're not because they don't have the right foundation. And he said, then there are those who are secure and sure. I hope that's where you are tonight. That's the, that's the portion of every child of God. That's the heritage that we have. We have a no-so salvation and I, I think I was talking about that here recently the other week in 1 John uh, 5, verses 11 through 13. We know that we have passed from death unto life. John tells us this so many different times over again. He that hath the Son hath life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know. It's the privilege of every child of God. And as a practical matter, you'll never have the victory. And, you know, some people have struggled with this because... It's, they, they're not basing it on the Bible, they're basing it on feelings. 
Well, I, I, I've always treasured this memory. I remember the day in chapel, Dr. Bob Jr. came in and said, you know, before I have my coffee in the morning, I don't feel saved. I didn't quite appreciate that the way I do now. Got to have that starter fluid, right? Well, I, it, it tickled me once I understood it a little bit more, and I laughed even at the time because I knew, I knew what he was saying. just didn't quite have the same appreciation of it that maybe I do now. Feelings come and go. I think I told you the story that time about the, the guy that came to Moody. He had this big battle. He, wasn't, he, he, he came to Moody, and he said, you know, I, I just have it's a problem. I don't feel like I'm saved. And Moody said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, Noah, was he safe in the ark? Was he, he said, what made him safe? His feelings of the ark. And the man said, well, of course. And then all of a sudden it dawned on him, what is it that makes us secure? The ark is Christ. It's Christ, not our feelings. Feelings change. You feel up, you feel down. Some days you feel on top of the world. Sometimes you really feel like you've got the victory other days you're struggling that all changes but god doesn't change his promises don't change the assurance that we're able to have by the indwelling holy spirit who takes the word of god and makes it real to us in our hearts and lives that doesn't change but you know there are a lot of people who struggle with this and i would tell you here tonight i wouldn't feel bad if you struggle with it i would just feel bad if you don't get it settled because you can no less a person than John Wesley struggled with it. And John Wesley did what a lot of us have done. He sort of put on a front. When someone came to him one day and said, Mr. Wesley, are you sure of your salvation? He said, well, um, Jesus Christ died for the whole world. <laughs> the guy said, yeah, well, we all believe that. But he said, are you sure that you're saved? And he said, well, um, he was certain that provision had been made for his salvation. The man pressed him again. He said, but are you sure, Wesley, that you are saved? Wesley said later, the Holy Spirit took that, that question and drove it like an arrow into his heart. And he said he, he, wouldn't, he couldn't get rest from that until he got that settled. It's a common problem for kids to have, I think, that grow up in Christian homes. They make an early profession of faith somewhere maybe three, four, five years old. They make a profession of faith they get to the place later down the road. They don't remember it. They're uncertain of the details. All they know is mom and dad said, oh, yeah, you prayed. You prayed and asked Jesus to come into your heart. So it's a, it's a problem that Christians, you'll always be a little off. You'll always be a little uncertain of yourself. It'll be almost like a guy that goes out to fire a rifle, but he flinches because he's expecting that terrible recoil. You won't have confidence. You'll miss the shot. But we can have that confidence. And folks, I would say to you tonight, these are the three foundations of victory. Now, next week, God willing, we'll move on and we'll talk about the fullness of victory. But as you can kind of tell from this, you have to have these foundations in your life. So what are they? Chapter, one, chapter 8, verse 1, the new birth. Chapter 8, verse 13, a new power. A new birth, a new power. And chapter 8, verse 16, a new assurance. Let's pray together.